I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Stephanie E. Jones Rogers about her new book, They Were Her Property. Isn't that nice? In her new book, They Were Her Property, Stephanie E. Jones Rogers examines the role of white women in the antebellum South, and she unmasks the truth, one that's completely counter to the narrative that's been painted by past historians, one that usually minimizes the role of white women in the institution of slavery, and it paints them as reluctant bystanders or even as allies to enslaved people. But that was far from the truth as Stephanie E. Jones Rogers reveals in this new book. You know, this was a really emotional book to read because it forces you to revisit the brutality of slavery through yet another painful lens. But you know, I have to emphasize this. It's an important piece of history that we should not look away from because there are so many parallels to today's political landscape. Think about it. Whose lives are we willing to discard for the comfort and gain of others? Whose labor goes unseen or is exploited so that we can all have more? So here is my conversation with Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. In your book, uh, first of all, it was a really emotional read for me. Um, and, and so you you not only dispel the myth that that white women were were bystanders in the brutality of slavery, which is a common narrative. Yes. You know, but in the book, you you disprove that, and you show that you know not only were they complicit, but in many ways they were pretty adept at slave ownership right. and everything that comes along with that. Yes. including participating in the capitalistic aspects of it. Yes. Right? The thing that I find really interesting is that all of these narratives that were taught in school or, you know, in books, up until this point, they try to paint this facade of America, especially during the slavery years, you know, where where white women are painted as, you know, not complicit. You know, and what I find really interesting about that is that often that narrative is so consistent Right, that not only do we not know what the real truth is, but often we don't know that there is another truth to look for, right? And so that's what I found, like, how did you know that there was another truth about this? What was your first clue? So when I was in graduate school, I began this project um, as my dissertation in 2009. And I was also completing coursework. And so I was reading a lot of materials, prepping for the exams that we have to take in order to move forward with the um, dissertation. And I noticed that um, the scholarship about white Southern women, um, particularly um, the history of the South, um, the history of white motherhood, um, and the history of white women's relationships in the institution of slavery, seemed to be quite distinct and quite remarkably different than those narratives that were being constructed and developed and and told in the histories of the African-American experience in in the United States. So those scholars who focused on African-American history seemed to be telling a very different story and using different sources to tell that story than the scholars who were documenting the experiences of white Southern women in the slave South. And so I was really kind of frustrated by what seemed to me to be a disconnect between these two subfields of of history, those historians who looked at Southern women's lives in the South in the 19th century and those who looked at the lives of formerly enslaved people, because um, it seemed to me that they were, you know, really talking 
maybe not even at each other, but there were these two kind of parallel narratives about white women's relationships to slavery that didn't seem to intersect. And for me, the intersection was, um, or the lack of intersection was primarily the economic dimension of the institution. And so for me, I wondered, you know, what is it about these two narratives? Why is there this disconnect? And so looking at the sources that those narratives were constructed upon um, and that they drew upon, that, to me, led to the answer, which was that scholars of, of Southern women were looking at the places which we would assume they would look, at the narratives that emerged in white women's letters to each other and to, to others, their diaries. Um, so those documents that a very small group of white women left behind, typically very literate and elite white women left behind to tell this story about their relationships to the institution of slavery. And so looking at what African-American historians were were using, those sources that they were using, I noticed that they were using the narratives of formerly enslaved people, the testimonies of formerly enslaved people to tell the story that included very deeply white women and the story of the economy of American slavery, the, the kind of economic dimensions of the story. So that led me to, you know, the question, you know, if I look at these narratives, um, these these testimonies of formerly enslaved people, what will they tell me about white women's economic relationships to the institution of slavery? And so when I looked at those narratives, when I looked at those testimonies, I found that enslaved people, formerly enslaved people had a lot to say about white women's economic investments in the institution of slavery. And so I used those narratives, those testimonies to guide the direction that I took as I crafted this narrative about white women's economic investments in the institution. Um, and they led me elsewhere to other sources, which I'd, you know, um, be happy to talk about as well. Yeah. So what were some of those sources? Were they, you said testimony, were they journals or interviews or, or what, what form? So what's really fascinating is that during the um, 1930s, right after the Great Depression, the federal government sought to reemploy as many unemployed people as they possibly could. And so they developed a number of different agencies. One in particular was called the Federal Writers Project. And so through the Federal Writers Project, the federal government sought out as many formerly enslaved people as they possibly could and wanted to have formerly unemployed writers to interview those formerly enslaved people and to try to document their experiences in slavery. And so they found about close to 3,000 formerly enslaved people. And so we have access to the interviews that those writers, um, uh, those government federal writers conducted with formerly enslaved people. And so looking at those interviews, I essentially just combed through those interviews to try to determine, one, whether formerly enslaved people mentioned their mistresses in those interviews. Two, what did they have to say about their mistresses? Did they identify their mistresses as their owners? Or did they identify other white women in those interviews as possible owners or possibly invested in the economy of American slavery? And then if they did, in fact, identify white women as owners, in those interviews, what did they have to say about that relationship, that ownership, their ownership? Did they talk about white women who bought and sold them or who inherited them, et cetera? So by using those sources, by using those interviews, I was able to document the myriad ways that formerly enslaved people talked about um, how white Southern women were economically invested in their continued subjugation. And then I used those testimonies, used those interviews to, to seek out corroborating evidence in other sources. So for 
for example, um, there are bills of sale that documented every transaction involving an enslaved person being bought or sold. So I looked at those sales. I looked at those bills of sale, um, which are very much like receipts that we receive today when we purchase something, to see if those documents identified a female buyer or seller. There were thousands and thousands of women in those bills of sale. I looked at legal records, court records, to see if women sued other people or if people sued them over um, any issue related to ownership of an enslaved person or contested ownership over an enslaved person. And then I also looked at the account books of slave traders. So these were men, typically men who bought and sold enslaved people for a living. I I tried to see if I could find white women as buyers or sellers in those account books. I found women in those account books. And then once I got to um, the Civil War era, I tried to find out if white women were discussed in uh, military correspondence. And I found, you know, union officials, Confederate officials, Confederate officers and union officers talking about white women who had some issue related to an enslaved person that they claimed to own. So I was finding all of these white women, white slave owning women in particular, in these other sources, primarily because of what formerly enslaved people had to say about white slave owning women and and the relationships that they saw emerge over the course of their lifetimes with regard to the economy of American slavery. Wow. You know, your book sent me on kind of a personal search, you know, and I I started thinking about the women in my own family Mm. and the generations before me and trying to, you know, do the math to see where and when the lineage to slavery might have begun. You know, and I'm thinking about, you know, possibly my great, great, great grandmother or just one generation prior to that, you know, could have possibly been a slave. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my point is, is that, you know, we're not really that far removed from these legacies. Absolutely. And I think what's really fascinating is that we see slavery and the kind of vestiges of slavery, the afterlife of slavery as something so far removed, so very distant from the present. And it's not really the case. That's not really the case. My grandparents were sharecroppers in North Carolina. Um, I was um, on Twitter um, last week and someone was talking about, you know, how their mom had an outhouse in like the 1970s. And I was like, my great aunt had an outhouse in 2001. So this idea that that, you know, slavery and kind of the aftermath of slavery are so distant from us that we're untouched in many respects by the legacy of slavery is, is I think, a, a false one that many of us still kind of hold. But when we look even just not even really hard, if just look a little bit more deeply than we usually do for these kind of vestiges of slavery and the oppressive systems that emerged right after slavery was over, we can see them everywhere. They're, they are all around us. Yeah. You know, the opening of the book, you know, just really kind of took my... My heart out of my chest because you talk about children, right? And the children of of slave owners, you know, and how they were groomed, to, you know, to be brutal, right? And to make sure that they understood the hierarchy between themselves as free people and the enslaved people, right? Absolutely. You know, and I thought it was really remarkable because you'd have these children who may have an enslaved child as a playmate, right? Mm-hmm. And that the child might sleep on the floor beside them, mm-hmm. you know, and then they would, you know, be a, their servant the next day or their slave the next day, mm-hmm. right? And this conflation between the role of, you know, enslaved person and companion, right? You know, Mm -hmm. how did they accomplish making sure that these children understood their relationship and would be adequately brutal? So what, again, going to what formerly enslaved people had to say that their testimonies, the interviews that the federal government conducted with them in the 1930s actually led me to that realization that, you know, when we think about white women's relationship to slavery, we often begin our kind of questioning, our process of questioning and interrogation when they're adults, 
But what formerly enslaved people were saying quite often is that little girls, when white white women were not even women, when they were girls, sometimes even infants, they were receiving enslaved people as gifts, um, whether it be birthday gifts, Christmas gifts, and also, uh, and most especially, as wedding gifts. So during the wedding receptions, for example, slave-owning parents would give enslaved people to their daughters as their wedding gifts. And there'd be kind of this ceremony at the reception um, after the wedding um, took place where they would give young women, young white women, enslaved people as their own. So there were all these moments along um, over the course of white women's lives where they received enslaved people or they were told that they would receive enslaved people. And so as a part of that, they also learned lessons about how to manage enslaved people effectively. Um, They were um, allowed to practice disciplinary techniques. There were also parents who not only gave their daughters vicarious lessons in slave mastery and slave discipline, but also allow for them to participate in acts of discipline. Um, There's an an account in the book where I talk about a father, a white father, who was whipping an older enslaved woman who had, in in his eyes, wronged his daughter or had slighted his young white daughter. And so he allowed for his daughter to participate in his disciplining of that older enslaved woman. So there were a variety of ways in which young white girls learned how to be slave owners and also effective slave masters or slave mistresses where they were able to, or at least taught how to hopefully and eventually create circumstances in which enslaved people would be obedient in circumstances in which they hoped that enslaved people would submit to their will um, without resistance. Um, And we know that that was easier said than done (laughs) because enslaved people rather consistently resisted enslavement and bondage um, in a variety of ways. But they were taught all of these techniques over the course of their lives so that once they became adults and in fact were able to assume full ownership over enslaved people, they had all the tools and the strategies that they needed in order to do that and hopefully to do that effectively. Yeah. You know, the thing that people often miss when talking about this is that economic factor, right? Like think about this as, you know, purely emotional, right? But children had to be groomed so that they could grow up and adequately take care of the family property. I mean, that was one motivation. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and then also, you know, it, it went both ways, right? I mean, yeah. I think you recount stories where enslaved people would be forced to greet babies and infants yes. as mistress or master. Yes. So yeah. that was part of it as well. Absolutely. It, there was a dual process of socialization. And I think it's important to underscore that this was a process by which both white Southerners and enslaved African-American Southerners learned about this system. This was not a natural inherent system. It was one that had to be taught, it had to be learned. And if either side kind of diverged from the paths that were set out for them, there were consequences to that. And so I talk about how not only were young white girls socialized and trained to be slave owners, but the other necessary component of that was for enslaved people to also learn that no matter the age of the white person, no matter the gender of the white person, those individuals were superior in the context of Southern slavery 
slavery and that they were to submit to the will of those individuals, no matter who they were, as long as they were white. And so that process unfolded in a variety of ways. And you just mentioned one in which as soon as a, a white parent gave birth to a child, they would summon all of the enslaved people to the home. And then each and every one of those enslaved people would have to line up, go into the room, greet the newborn as either their young mistress or their young master. And so this was a process by which they then in that moment were told, it doesn't matter if this is a newborn, it doesn't matter if this newborn can't even talk or walk yet. You are to respect them as your superior. And so there was this dual process of socialization that was absolutely fundamental to, you know, this racially divided social order that didn't just emerge in slavery, but, you know, that was propagated and promulgated through the institution of slavery, but really began with colonial settlement, to be honest. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, is that if they failed to do that, right, there could be Mm -hmm. really grave consequences if they failed to use, you know, mistress and master with an infant. Absolutely. Um, One example that I, I talk about in the book is when a young a young girl she was she wasn't a toddler but she maybe was about seven or so um, and she um, she did not refer to her mistress's child as master and so her mistress sent her on an errand gave her a little note to take to the clerk at a local store and she brought back a little package and when she got back with the package she learned what was inside it was a whip and her mistress then began to whip her and when she asked why she whipped her she found out she was whipping her because she had not addressed her young son as master. She had not addressed her mistress's young son, who was a toddler, as master. So these are the kinds of um, repercussions, the kind of costs that enslaved people, even children, enslaved children paid if they did not embrace that or to, to learn the lessons that were, were required of them, the lessons about slave mastery and also white supremacy. So at this point in the conversation, I had to take a break and stop recording. The story of this child was really upsetting to me. And of course, we all know about the brutality of slavery. And we know intellectually that children were also brutalized as well. You know, I was reminded of my own child, who is the same age as the child in the story. So while I was pulling myself together during this interview, um, Stephanie described how tough it was for her to get through her research for the book and how she was able to cope. You know, it's, I mean, it's, see, I, I mean, I think I'll take this moment to talk about what that process was like for me because I am a descendant of enslaved people. I'm a descendant of African-Americans who lived in a racially hostile world. My mother, you know, was born a year of Brown versus the Board of Education. And so, you know, this is a, a history that is my own. And so as I read many of these interviews, um, the, the level of detail, um, the kind of um, the, the level of, of uh, violence and brutality that the formerly enslaved people described was such that um, so traumatizing for me at times that I, I, could, I had to take days off from from working on this project because I couldn't withstand the trauma that came with reading about these experiences, the atrocities that were committed against these enslaved children and men and women. Um, so it wasn't a very easy process for me either. And and it would bother me if it wasn't um, something that was also quite emotional for, for my readers as well. It's necessary 
because these are the stories that formerly enslaved people told. And they didn't tell them simply because they wanted them hidden in the Library of Congress. They told them because they thought it was important for us as Americans to know and to reckon with. And I think, you know, part of what I hope for by writing this book is that we can reckon with the darkest dimensions of our history and recognize that it is very much a part of our narrative, our narrative as Americans. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I've I've been talking about the book nonstop since I started reading it. And, you know, the the children piece was really hard for me. And there's one story in, in it, you know, speaking of, you know, vicarious brutality, where, you know, there's a 12 year old enslaved child. He was beaten to death, right? Yes, um, absolutely. While the, the wife and daughters watched, right? Yeah. You know, and I just wonder, you know, and then maybe this isn't even a question, like what kind of culture <laughs> could exist where, you know, people are kind of on the veranda having tea while a child is being beaten to death? At the core of the, of, of slavery in in the United States or wherever it exists is violence, is a culture of violence. Violence is absolutely necessary for slavery to exist. There's this idea that, you know, enslaved people, they relinquished, you know, they they can resign themselves to their status as enslaved people in in the United States. And I'll just refer specifically to the context of the book. Um, But what you see on the ground is that in, in a variety of ways that we don't even recognize as resistance with air quotes around it, enslaved people were resisting on a daily basis what bondage entailed for them. And even in circumstances where slave owners said, I was very kind to, you know, this person who was my slave. Enslaved people saw bondage in itself, whether there was violence or not as violence, whether there was physical brutality or not as violence. And so when you think about that, you have to understand that there's there's a constant resistance that slave owners are constantly having to fight against. So there's always this underlying the system of slavery is violence, is necessary violence in order for that system to continue, for it to be perpetuated. And not only were white slave-owning women or white soon-to-be slave-owning girls socialized into discipline, but they understood that violence was fundamental to the perpetuation of the institution, one that they would benefit from in a variety of ways. And in this, in the book, I showed the economic ways in which they benefited from the perpetuation of the institution. They understood that from a very young age, they understood that violence was absolutely necessary in order to keep the system going, to perpetuate the system. They made a choice. And that choice was white supremacy. And in this particular case, keep enslaved people in bondage. So, you know, when I describe that that case, um, it's the case of Green Martin and his three daughters who witnessed him over the course of several hours, him and his son over the course of several hours, beat a 12-year-old boy to death. When they testified in court, they talked about how this was not uncommon behavior. So, So we have to remember that these young girls grew up seeing this on a daily basis, hearing the sounds of of violence and brutality, hearing the screams and the moans and groans of enslaved people wounded and being beaten. So when you are accustomed to that, when you when you grow up with that from infancy, it is it's it's every day. It's your every day. It's not exceptional. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing that, you know, and I alluded to this earlier about the fact that this is often talked about from, you know, an emotional perspective, mm-hmm. you know, from, you know, racism. But, you know, the, there were really, really strong political and economic drivers, like you just mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. And it was especially important for the women mm-hmm. because, you know, the patriarchy had an even bigger stranglehold in, on the women in that culture. Mm-hmm. And so this is, in a lot of ways, all they had because often when a woman would get married, you know, she would, instead of being given land, she would be given slaves. And in order to, you know, have any kind of freedom, she would really have to hold on to that property. Absolutely. And that's one of the fundamental um, kind of, I think, interventions of the book. Many of the studies of slavery that have come before this book have not examined married women's slave ownership. And the reason why is because there's this assumption that married women wouldn't even be able to own enslaved people in large part because of this legal doctrine called coverture or couverture in French. And so essentially, you've just described it when a woman who owned any property or earned any wages would marry all of that wealth would become her husband's immediately upon marriage. So her identity, her legal identity, as well as her economic identity were subsumed into her husband's and they became one, a marital unity, as they called it. And so many historians have looked at this legal doctrine of coverture, have looked at the impact that it's had on, you know, many women in the country in the moments in which I'm talking about in this book, and have kind of written off this idea that a number of women could, in fact, find ways to circumvent the constraints of coverture and could, in fact, hold on to property and acquire additional property after marriage. But what I did was I looked at the legal records, again, you know, taking my lead from what formerly enslaved people had to say, and they often talked about married mistresses, married slave-owning women who own them. And so taking my lead from them, I looked at court records and found married women suing their husbands, taking their husbands to court. And in those court records, they would talk about how their husband, you know, sold a slave that they owned and they didn't give him permission. And even deeper into those court records, they described the ways that they circumvented the legal doctrine of coverture, typically using what were called marital contracts back then, but what we would refer to as prenuptial agreements now. They would often have trust estates. So just like we we hear about trust fund babies, they would be trust fund babies. They would work with their parents to create these separate trust estates so that um, their husbands couldn't touch the property that they put in those trusts. So there were all of these ways that they circumvented the law, which, as you mentioned, the law that would grant the patriarch, the white male household head, complete power in, in terms of economic power over his dependents, and in this case, his wife. They were able to circumvent those laws by using these legal instruments like prenups and trusts to protect and preserve their control over enslaved property in this particular case. And so by looking at those legal documents, I was able to show how women not only maintained possession, but also acquired even more property during the course of their marriages. So it's it's really an extraordinary thing to find. Um, I didn't, you know, didn't expect to find it, of course. Basically, if you read many history books, they tell you that, you know, you wouldn't find married women in courts because of coverture. You wouldn't certainly wouldn't find them suing their husbands over property that they claim to own. So it was really extraordinary to find these details in these records. Right. You know, I wonder if that led to 
even more brutality with white women because it really was their only link there, there you know, to any kind of freedom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that's one of the arguments that I make in the book that, you know, for many of these women, and this is to go back to the point you just made, that for many of these women, slavery was their freedom. Because as you said, there are other scholars who have other historians who look at the women in the colonial period, and they found that slave-owning parents would typically give their daughters enslaved people and cash versus land. So they would give their daughters the slaves and their daughters money or even sometimes stock, and they would give their sons the land. And so for them, when you, you know, kind of reckon with the fact that they cannot vote, that typically they cannot enter the courts, they cannot own a business um, or have a business in their own name. There, there are all of these ways in which the law constrains all of the kind of rights that we, we now enjoy, women enjoy in the United States when they are adults. But women on, in the South, those who were able to benefit from slave ownership, recognized that by being a slave owner, they actually were able to exercise some of the rights associated with property ownership. They were able to go into the courts if they could maintain separate personal control over enslaved people as property. They could go into the courts and they could sue other people. They could actually own businesses, again, if they use certain legal instruments to secure businesses. So through slavery, through slave ownership, women, white women who in most other realms of their lives, dimensions of their lives, had very little, if any, rights, could have a certain kind of body of rights and exercise a certain number of rights with regard to slave ownership that they weren't able to exercise in other dimensions of their lives. So for them, slavery was their freedom, was their way to kind of mitigate some of the the constraints imposed upon them by a patriarchal Southern society and also by the courts and the law more broadly. Yeah. You know, another interesting layer was the conflict within marriages, right? Mm -hmm. You know, between between slave owners. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'd have these couples who often, you know, couldn't agree on how they treat their their slaves. You know, sometimes men in a marriage would be the more brutal ones. And, you know, sometimes it was reversed. Sometimes the women were more brutal than the men. You know, and couples would actually split over this. And the thing is, it wasn't necessarily about kindness or humanity. I mean, sometimes it, it was, but, you know, often it was not, right? It was often about what's the best way to preserve our property and our wealth. You know, so how did these conflicts play out in those households? You know, how were these things, how were these conflicts resolved? So that was another really fascinating discovery that I stumbled upon when I was reading the interviews that were conducted with formerly enslaved people. You know, we think about the white Southern household and just broadly, you know, white households in this period as very much patriarchal, that the husband was the male head of household and he possessed the power and he may in fact allocate or delegate certain elements of household control and management to his wife. But generally he maintained the power over all dependents in his household and he had the last say. In the context of some of the households that formerly enslaved people lived in and were raised in and grew up in, they talk about very differently ordered and structured households wherein when slave owning couples, both the husband and the wife owned slaves in their own right, they held legal title to slaves separately, that the kind of order and the the kind of way that power was allocated in those households looked very different. It looked like what anthropologist Carol Crumley called a hierarchically ordered household. So hierarchy means there's this, this one 
person or one entity in the household that possesses all of the power and control. But in a hierarchical household, there are a variety of ways in which power can be shared. So formerly enslaved people talked about households in which both husbands and wives exercised power, where they shared power. And sometimes the way that they shared that power was configured differently depending on the proclivities and the preferences of the, the, the couple in question. There were households in which slave-owning couples would discipline enslaved people in the household, and they would hire an overseer, a manager of the enslaved people who worked in the fields, and that person would discipline the, the enslaved people who worked in the fields. There were other couples who chose to divide up discipline by gender. So the wife would discipline all the enslaved females, the husband would discipline all the enslaved men. And still then, there were others who, when they owned enslaved people in their own right, would say, I, I will discipline the slaves that I own and you discipline the slaves that you own and you are not to touch mine and vice versa. And and what's really what was really astonishing to me was that there were some formerly enslaved people who described instances in which slave-owning couples had preferences for their own slaves. So there were um, enslaved-owning women who would marry and when they married, you know, they received enslaved people as wedding gifts. They would bring those enslaved people with them to their new homes with their husbands and so their husbands had already kind of, you know, they would have a, the husband slaves might be the cook or might be the person who cleaned the parlor. And these women, these white women would come in and replace their husband slaves with their preferred slaves, the slaves that they brought from their own households. So there were all of these really interesting and complex ways that slave owning couples, particularly when they own slaves in their own right separately, would configure the power and control in their households. And there were times in which they conflicted. So there were times when Slave-owning couples, husbands and wives, they embraced different strategies and disciplinary techniques for managing the enslaved people they owned. And those managerial techniques and strategies were in conflict with each other. And so they would fight with each other over how to discipline the slaves in their households and beyond their households. So it's really interesting when we pay really close attention to what formerly enslaved people have to say about not just white slave-owning women's kind of role in their continued captivity, but also about slavery in general and women's roles in slavery in general, you see a, a kind of very differently constructed narrative, a different perspective, a very unique and kind of think striking and provocative perspective of what happens behind the curtains of these of these households. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about those relationships between white women and the enslaved women, because what's different about them is that they were often really intimate. Right. You know, they yes. would help them bathe or they would, you know, be wet nurses or they would, you know, brush their hair or rub their feet. You know, how mm -hmm. how did that work? I mean, just that level of intimacy. This, I think, is one of those elements or dimensions of slavery that we'll never truly wrap our heads around, we'll never truly fully grapple with and reckon with because it, it gets to the level of psychological. It's it's quite psychological and, and it gets to the level of the subconscious. It's in our human nature to claim to own an individual who has cared for us since we were children, who have cared, you know, cared for us. We've suckled at their breasts. Like how, how does a person who has, you know, has nursed at someone's breast over the course of their lives come to then identify that person 
as a human, but also as property. I think that's something that we still have yet to reckon with. And even psychologists, I don't think, have come up with a good theory as to how that happens. So it's, I think, one of those unknowns that we'll never really truly be able to fully understand. Yeah. I mean, even when I think about it and I think about the conversation we we started with about, you know, we aren't really that far removed generationally from that, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at some point, I hope it gets explored because I'm assuming that we're still living, obviously, we're still living with the remnants of that. Yeah. I mean, I think um, when I, you know, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about how white mothers, you know, for a variety of reasons, they choose to compel enslaved women, enslaved mothers to serve as wet nurses for their infants. And sometimes when they make those decisions, they know very well that they are going to be separating enslaved women from their children, from their newborns even. And yet they still decide to move forward with those decisions. And as over the past year, as we've seen, you know, the crisis at the border, particularly with child separation policies, intentional policies at the administrative level, wherein these are seen as policies that are constructed to separate immigrant children from their mothers is seen as a deterrent against immigration or undocumented immigration. I I think about some of the instances in which interviews have been conducted with people who live on the border. There was one that was quite poignant to me because there was a white woman who was asked, you know, what if these were your children? How would you feel, you know, if these were your children? And she said, they, they wouldn't be my children. You know, and there's this way in which I guess psychologically we're able to construct ourselves as quite distinct and different from others. And that allows for us to dehumanize them in ways that makes these kinds of atrocities possible. You know, and I think you see this in slavery, but you also see this in the present day. You know, looking back and reflecting upon these historical moments are instructive in telling us what we're capable of you know, and, and how ugly we can truly be if we allow for, you know, these kinds of these kinds of behaviors and activities to continue. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that you really had to, they really had to push the, the, the you know, the biological factor that allowed them to, to have wet nurses. They had to push those parallels back in their yeah. minds, right? Because, I mean, yeah. there is a timing factor here. Mm-hmm. That, you know, how did that happen? How did they get the pregnancies to align? And that's that's something that formerly enslaved people hint at. There's an account in the book that I discussed where um, a formerly enslaved person is talking about how she was born of sexual assault, that her mother was sexually assaulted by her master and that her master's wife knew that she was sexually assaulted and knew that she was, in fact, a child born of rape. And in in the context of knowing that, she still coerced or compelled her mother to wet nurse her infant. So there are moments in which formerly enslaved people talk about the fact that white women are quite privy to the fact that these births are happening as a consequence of sexual assault. Sometimes sexual assaults perpetrated by their own husbands, by their own family members, male family members. So there are, you know, there are other instances in which formerly enslaved people talk about how their mothers served as the wet nurses for their mistresses every single time that their mistresses had children. And they talk about, you know, scores of children, you know, a dozen children um, in one instance in which the mother was also lacking at the same time. The enslaved woman was lactating at the same time as her mistress and was having children at the same time her mistress was having children. And so there are accounts in which formerly enslaved people are very clear that those conceptions happened in some cases as a consequence of sexual assault. You know, one of the most absurd things that I did read in the book was that, you know, often women 
would buy an enslaved person to take their husband's place in the Civil War. Yeah. So during the Civil War, during the first what was basically the first draft in in United States history, there were a number of ways in which individuals of means, men of means, could buy their way out of service. One avenue through which they were able to do that was to hire a substitute. (laughs) So, you know, we think about just try to wrap your head around you, you know, hiring somebody to go to war for you. But in this moment in which, you know, there were impoverished individuals throughout the South and they were given these really huge sums of money to go to war as a substitute for white men who typically either had lots of slaves or, or lots of wealth and were able to pay for this. In one particular instance, there was a white woman who owned an enslaved man. She she didn't want her husband to go to war, so she sold a slave and used the funds that she received from the enslaved person's sale to pay for her husband's substitute. Wow. So, you know, so this is a tough question to ask and, you know, but I want to ask it. It's tough because I don't know if there's an easy answer. And also it's a tough question because, you know, I don't know if I want to know the answer, (laughs) you know, about, you know, what are the remnants between the relationships between white women and black women today, you know, in modern times? When we look at the ways in which, um, White Southern women fail to come to the aid of enslaved women when they sought out their help. It doesn't surprise me that there are many instances today when sisterhood fails, when the alleged sisterhood between white women and and women of color in this country fail. Stephanie E. Jones-Rogers, thank you so much for talking to me today. And thank you for all of your work and your research and, you know, of course, your emotional investment in bringing us this really, really important piece of work. And thank you so much, Jen, for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation and you want more episodes like this, the best thing that you can do to support the electorate is to subscribe and leave a review. Pause this episode now and hit the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you're listening. It's immensely helpful. And please tell your friends and family to subscribe. So until next time, keep up the good fight.